Senate passed a $2 trillion package. But is it enough? The president wants this all wrapped up by Easter. But I don't think coronavirus is listening. Frontline healthcare professionals are starting to feel the crush of the incoming wave. This is America Dissected, and I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. If you're a regular listener on this pod, or have been paying attention at all, you know that the whole goal of our response right now is to flatten the curve so that the number of cases doesn't overwhelm our healthcare system. That's why more and more local and state officials are issuing stay-at-home orders, and social distancing is now a verb. This is the proverbial cure for the pandemic. But like most cures in America, the costs are astronomical. Unemployment claims have skyrocketed. Hit hardest are people at the edge of the economic system. Gig workers and hourly wage workers, and even small business owners who rely on people being out and about to earn their daily bread. This cost is part of what has delayed a full commitment to social distancing. People simply can't afford it. In order to take the burden off of everyday folks, we've needed real congressional action for some time. The Senate unanimously passed a $2 trillion stimulus package yesterday, the largest in American history. It takes some of the burden off of people suffering the economic consequences of this pandemic. Here's what's in it. Unemployment insurance on steroids, as Senator Chuck Schumer called it, extending unemployment benefits an additional 13 weeks, including an additional $600 a week beyond what states include as unemployment salary into workers' pockets for four months. It includes a one-time $1,200 check to every adult earning less than $75,000 a year and $500 for their children. It puts $377 billion toward forgivable loans for small businesses and $150 billion towards aid for state, local, and tribal governments to support their response efforts. And it puts $100 billion towards supporting hospitals on the front lines of the pandemic. But the biggest single line item in the budget by far is $500 billion towards emergency bailout loans for corporations, such as the $75 billion bailout package for hardest-hit industries like the airlines, though these loans will be overseen by a new inspector general in the Treasury Department and a special congressional oversight committee. Here's my take. It's absolutely critical that Congress act to provide relief to the American people who are watching their livelihoods ravaged under the economic burdens of social distancing. By knowing where and how the relief is coming, Americans are more likely to comply with social distancing rather than go out in the world to save their livelihoods. In that respect, this is a public health intervention. That's good for all of us, because the only way around this is through it. But I've got three questions. First, a quarter of this stimulus package, meant to put money in the hands of the American people, comes in the form of corporate bailouts. And while I can understand that people work for corporations, I'm old enough to remember the Great Recession and how big banks made out with big bailouts while everyone else suffered. There was a way to do this to make sure that didn't happen again. Senator Elizabeth Warren proposed eight conditions for corporations accepting the bailouts. No layoffs, move to a $15 minimum wage as quickly as practical, respect existing collective bargaining agreements, bar dividend payments or executive bonuses for three years, no political expenditures without shareholder and board approval, at least one board seat for workers, no stock buybacks where companies use their cash to buy up stock to inflate the value of their shares, and CEOs face criminal liability if they deviate from the other seven. Our friends at Data for Progress pulled these and found broad-based support for every single one except the buyback clause, which 36% supported compared to 16% who opposed. 
48% didn't know, meaning they were unfamiliar with the issue. It is kind of wonky. Why not impose these qualifications to make sure that American taxpayer money goes back into the hands of American taxpaying people? And why not use this package to take on homelessness or relieve student debt? Here's my second question. If we know that COVID is going to overwhelm our hospitals and we're all socially distancing to prevent that from happening, why so little toward hospitals? $100 billion may seem like a lot of money, but it's only 5% of the overall package. Shouldn't we be getting more out to the front lines of the battle against COVID? My last question is simple. Is it even enough? Here's New York Governor Andrew Cuomo on why $2 trillion is just a drop in the bucket. I'm disappointed. I said I was disappointed. Uh, I find it uh, irresponsible. I find it reckless. But then not everyone thinks this whole coronavirus thing is going to last that long. Ultimately, the goal is to ease the guidelines and open things up to very large sections of our country as we near the end of our historic battle with the invisible enemy. we are going for a while, but we win. We win. I said earlier today that I hope we can do this by Easter. I think that would be a great thing for our country, and we're all working very hard to make that a reality. The president seems to have had enough with social distancing, both because he doesn't want the quote-unquote cure to be worse than the disease, and because, according to the AP's White House correspondent, Jonathan Lemire, he's probably just bored. He does miss the road, and that's according to our reporting. He misses the rallies. He misses the time on Air Force One, which is he really revels, and he usually brings on aides and advisors and friends to fly with him, or he works the phones. Uh, that, that is something he is, as someone put it to me in the last uh, 24 hours or so, you know, feeling cooped up, that he's, a, he's a little, feeling a little store-crazy. To be clear, this isn't the beginning of the end. It's the end of the beginning. We are nowhere near done with this. Cases are increasing by the day. March 1st saw 18 new cases of COVID. March 25th saw 9,446. And despite our best efforts, the curve is not yet flattening. Per Dr. Fauci, it's accelerating. Right now, you wouldn't even think about not putting the damper on what's going on in New York. That would be outlandish as it's going up, no doubt. But there are other parts of the country which we need to get a better feel for what is going on. And the way we do that is by increasing testing and identifying people who are infected, isolating them, getting out of circulation, and then do contact tracing. That's what we call containment. And while the president wants to shut down our response, the rest of us have to shut down the disease. And that means more social distancing. It means more support for our brave women and men on the front lines, It means activating the Defense Production Act to produce more protective equipment, testing equipment, and ventilators. What's worse is this. Tonight you're minimizing the risk, the danger of the virus. Are you telling the Americans, except for the ones who are sick, not to change any of their their behaviors? No, I think you have to always, I do it a lot anyway, as you probably heard, wash your hands, (laughs) stay clean. You don't have to necessarily grab every handrail unless you have to. You know, you do certain things that you do when you have the flu. COVID-19 is not the flu. It's far worse. But some of our political leaders understand what we're really up against. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal represents Washington's 7th District, one of the hardest-hit communities by COVID-19, and also the first. We'll hear her perspective on what we can learn from Washington State's experience, her hopes for a congressional response, and what it's like to be a congresswoman in the time of COVID. After the break.
Friends, we all know that we're facing a coronavirus epidemic, but there's another, deeper epidemic that set the stage for this one, an epidemic of insecurity. It threatens our healthcare, our housing, and our democracy. I wrote a book about it and how to treat it called Healing Politics. I hope you'll order your copy today at healingpoliticsbook.com. I'm Akila Hughes. I'm Gideon Resnick. We are the hosts of What a Day, Crooked's daily news podcast. Look, we understand keeping up with the news can be a challenge, especially when we're living in an actual pandemic and we haven't gone outside in a week. That's right. Life is like a movie. But you know what? That's why we're here. We'll be bringing you the news every weekday morning in about 15 minutes. So you're up to speed on the latest developments, both coronavirus related and not. And as always, our goal here is to keep you informed, but not feeling like you're overwhelmed. So you don't have to count on Twitter, which can be very exciting and dramatic, but also very scary and not always real. We're going to be level-headed right here all the time. Yeah, so go ahead and subscribe to What A Day now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal is uh, the representative for Washington State's 7th District. Um, she's also the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus and a real leader on, on health care, and in particular uh, Medicare for All, um, having been uh, the lead sponsor on the Medicare for All bill in the House of Representatives. So, Congresswoman, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule. Really uh, appreciate it. want to jump right in. Um, so you're from one of the hardest hit communities in the country. Uh, what do you feel like the rest of the country needs to learn uh, from Washington's experience? Thank you, Abdul, and thank you for everything you're doing to just help people learn about how we prepare for these things and how we respond. Um, as you said, we were the first state to have a confirmed case, and we now have 110 fatalities in our state. That's about 28% of all the fatalities in the country. And unfortunately, we bore the brunt of the initial botched test kits that CDC prepared, and so there was a delay. But in many ways, I think the first thing to learn is invest in your public health systems. I mean, in spite of the fact that the federal government over decades has disinvested in everything from public health to education, our state, and we've been fortunate to have uh, a Democratic governor and a lot of Democratic electeds at the local and county levels that continue to at least try to put as much into the public health system as possible. And as you well know, that is the first line of response for any kind of a crisis like this, public health crisis like this. And so we have a public health system that did respond very quickly. Um, and that's not to say we're, we're through the woods by any means, but that has been very important. Secondly, uh, you know, we have a history of being progressive pioneers. And so our state and local folks have taken a lot of important actions immediately to try to protect working people. So we, uh, we had the first citywide ban on rent-based evictions, and now we've got a state-based ban on that. Um, we also have been, you know, very generous in making sure that we're addressing COVID within the um, jail system, for example, and the court system. So there's a lot of pieces of this that uh, we have been able to push because we already have done a lot of work on progressive policies and how to, you know, what are the things we need? We already had a paid leave policy, for example, in Washington state, which has been incredibly helpful, though not 
the totality of what we want. Mm, mm. And we've got a lot to learn um, from from the experience out in Washington State, both around uh, how to respond and also how to how to prepare. Um, you know, you talked about testing kits, and um, uh, you've been a real leader on making sure that the response is equitable. You wrote, uh, I thought, a fantastic letter calling. Uh, on um, the the administration to uh, protect immigrants and, and in particular those in detention centers um, and other vulnerable groups. Can you speak a little bit about um, the fears that you have for these communities in this moment um, and what real leadership ought to look like? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I've been working on immigrant rights issues for a long time and, and issues that affect, affect black and brown folks and poor people. And, and I would say it's it's obviously the right thing to do from a moral perspective. That's what I believe, to make sure that everybody, regardless of citizenship or regardless of, of where they live, have uh, the ability to be tested without any, you know, any costs. But it's also the right thing to do in managing a public health crisis, even if you didn't care about immigrants at all. The, the reality is that it benefits everybody to make sure that we know who has this virus and that we are taking the precautions we need to take. And so we have been pushing very hard to say, we have to stop putting a political lens on these things. We have to be pushing for everybody to get testing. And of course, if we had Medicare for all, we would make sure we cover everyone. But that is really, really important. Yeah, that's... um. That's, uh, that's, that's a really uh, important point. I want to get to the Medicare for All question a little bit later on. But, um, you know, we've seen the Trump administration try to cut the CDC budget every fiscal year since he's taken office. Um, and even as of two weeks ago, they were trying to cut the CDC budget in fiscal year 2021, this current year that's being negotiated as well. Um, how do you feel like these proposed cuts have hampered the CDC's capacity to react? In particular, uh, may have set the stage for um, for the, uh, the, the 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 testing fiasco that that we're currently wading through. Well, I mean, it's a huge issue, right? He he disbanded the pandemic response team that was set up specifically to deal with this. Um, the stockpile, the the national stockpile, which is what we have been drawing on as a state to get our uh, personal protective equipment. We don't have enough of it to get ventilators. We don't have enough of them. We don't have enough gowns, disposable gloves, all those things that we need to protect our frontline workers. Um, we are currently getting from the national emergency stockpile. That stockpile has been severely depleted over the years of cutting budgets. And so we are now being put in a situation where we're having to triage. We can't get the equipment that we need to our frontline health workers. If we lose our frontline health workers to this virus because they get infected, that would be a very, very serious problem. So um, on those levels, there is serious lack of, uh, of preparedness mm-hmm. to be able to handle this. But even beyond that, I would say, you know, when you look at a population that has literally 60% of our population doesn't even have $400 in their bank account. That means that they cannot weather any kind of a crisis that where they lose their job for any period of time. Um, a health population that hasn't been able to get the kind of health care that they need for such a long time, which means that they have a lot of underlying conditions and maybe even ones that they don't know about 
that make them much more susceptible. So on every level, you're seeing the disinvestment of the federal government, not only with CDC, lack of research into necessary drugs and trials, but also um, into things like this, this stockpile and emergency preparedness affecting our response to this crisis. Yeah, one um, one approach to, to try and fortify uh, our uh, stockpile and, and get much needed uh, resources to the front lines would be to activate, truly activate uh, the Defense Production Act. And, you know, we know that um, that, you know, the president has come close to it, but hasn't quite gotten there. What what do you make of um, what we need to be doing around uh, leveraging the Defense Production Act and what that might mean for um, not just, you know, obviously all the work we're doing to flatten the curve, but uh, to increase our ability to withstand the curve as it uh, as it hits us. This is huge. Um, we One of the things that's happening right now is states are literally bidding against each other for the very limited supply of essential equipment that we need, whether that's ventilators or PPE. If the president were to actually use the Defense Production Act to generate the supply of those things by basically investing in supporting um, the businesses that we have to transform their production into generating enormous capacity, um, enormous supply of these essential products that we need, and then the um, federal government negotiates those prices and distributes those uh, pieces of equipment across the country, that would be a, a huge benefit to us because it would speed everything up. It would give that push that's needed to actually get those um, manufacturers to be able to coordinate and quickly manufacture the things we need. Right now, we just placed, our state just placed an order for 2 million N95 masks. They aren't going to get to us until April. Mm. And we are basically every night we call and we beg the Health and Human Services Deputy Secretary or Secretary or FEMA to please get us whatever mm. they have in the stockpile, which just isn't enough. Mm. We need a, an expanded supply that we can, you know, we can really quickly um, scale up manufacturing of the things that we need. And uh, we're supporting the, the manufacture and then the distribution of those things through a centralized system. So you know one of the one of the um, the things that I love most about your leadership is uh, that you've you know taken up the mantle of leading on Medicare for all in the House and um, you know that that's taken the form of both as an organizer and then of course as a legislator. Um, how has this moment changed the way you think about Medicare for all and changed the way that you talk about it uh, and you advocate for it? Well, without using the words Medicare for all, um, just imagine how different our response and our ability to respond would be mm. if we had universal health care. And so there are just so many pieces of what we're saying that would allow us to advocate to respond more quickly in this crisis. So first, it's a centralized system. Um, that means that we could quickly, as the government, direct all of our healthcare providers to do certain things without having to negotiate with private insurers to get no copays, premiums, or deductibles um, for not just for testing, but for treatment as well. Um, it is universal. We wouldn't have to worry about who we don't cover in a public health crisis. And it would have given us a population that doesn't have those underlying 
health conditions that I talked about earlier, where presumably we would be a healthier society that would be more able to address a crisis like this. I'm not saying it would be everything. You also have to have a quick response. You have to have some other things as well. It's not as if if you just have a single-payer system, you could deal with it. But I do think that it is showing me in real time, and I think it's showing the country in real time, what an inadequate healthcare system we have mm. and how deeply necessary it is for us not to have this patchwork, but to have universal, comprehensive um, healthcare guaranteed for everybody and without the costs that people are dealing with. Mm. Well, I, um, I deeply appreciate that. And uh, again, grateful for your leadership uh, for the public's health. What's it like to be a congresswoman on the go in the middle of a pandemic? Um, what is your life like and how are you staying healthy and sane? I guess I would say it's um, a privilege to be able to just be fierce about what, you know, about my constituents and about getting what we need to them. It is frustrating because we're not getting what we need to them, you know, and I think that 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 tension is very much real. But I think at the end of the day, I don't know what gives me hope and what keeps me healthy, of course, is my family and my dog and my husband, who are the only ones that are in the house with me, but also the generosity of uh, people in the community, you know, people who um, are looking to see what they can do to help um, chefs that are cooking meals for the UW Virology Lab. Um, People, a, a, a Seattle-based writer, Igioma, who set up a fund to provide emergency funding for rent and food and utilities to artists who have lost their income. Um, a constituent who reached out to me the other day to get 60 and 95 masks to a local hospital that were just sitting in his basement that he didn't realize he had until this happened. Um, you know, things like that that give me real hope. And I think at the end of the day, I know the term is social distancing, but I prefer to use physical distancing because I think what we should be doing is social closening, even as we have to physically distance. And so if we can keep in mind that this is not only just a time of crisis that we have to get through, but that our strength grows, our wisdom grows, and our ability to really see our in interconnectedness grows as we weather this together and collectively. Well, I love that. And um, again, really grateful for you and your strength and your leadership uh, and your fierceness. And um, please do stay safe uh, out there. And uh, and uh, we look forward to, uh, to touching base again soon, again soon. Really, really appreciate your time tonight. Well, thank you so much for all of your leadership and for everything that you are continually doing to give us hope in this country. Well, that's kind. Thank you. That was Congresswoman Premila Jayapal. As usual, on our way out, I want to tell you what I'm watching right now. With two relief packages out on their way, will there be the political will for a third? In fact, with coronavirus in their midst, the Senate may be adjourning until April 20th. Yes, in the middle of a pandemic. What are the prospects for more relief if, in fact, this lasts for a while? Early signs of the tsunami to come. This is how an emergency doctor in Queens describes it. The frustrating thing about all of this is it really just feels like it's too little, too late. Like we knew, we knew it was coming. 
Will we be able to provide them the masks and gloves and gowns and beds and ventilators they need to care for their patients in time? And finally, COVID-19 is starting to hit us personally. How are we as Americans coping with the distancing, particularly as we start to hear more about the consequences of this? That's all for today. But if you'd like to support organizations leading the fight to support our most vulnerable during this pandemic, donate to Crooked Media's Coronavirus Relief Fund at crooked.com slash coronavirus. We'll see you on Tuesday with another update. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Stephen Hoffman is our senior producer. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra and Sydney Rapp. The theme song is by Taki Yasuzawa and Alex Huguiera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geisman. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.